Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about statistical power. We also discuss my mom, 11-year-old saxophone players, child labor laws, vision and pigs, the poop emoji, and we use the word persnickety. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Greg. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How about yourself? I am fine. I found this nice quiet office to sit in, and then mere minutes ago, they started leaf blowing right outside the window, and I think <laughs> they have moved on. So so you're not using the Quantitude Studio that we have? I am not using the Quantitude Studio because evidently it got backed up, and they need to call the plumber to get that repaired. <laughs> so... That's okay. That's and the not echo in there. Available the echo is just brutal. A couple hours in, I was the last one to use it, and so I'd rather avoid that for a couple of days. So no, I am actually sitting in another faculty member's office um, because I have the master key, and it's summer, and the building is abandoned. And so as long as they don't come in, uh, I think we're fine. Now, how about you? And that's because, pretty safe. Yeah, that's pretty safe because faculty don't come in during the summer. Which actually is a segue to this very podcast because kind of you and I have months of seemingly empty time and this seemed like a good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm supposed to be working on a grant, but (laughs) whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have two that are half written. And so jointly in the aggregate, I have a grant written. I wrote an entire R01. The problem is, is it's just they're two halves of different projects. That's fine. Just get a no-cost extension. You're good. Don't you have to get a cost extension first before you get a no-cost <laughs> extension? I, I don't know. I, I get all my work done on time, Patrick. Uh, well, I'll add that to the list of things <laughs> that are different between me and you. Okay. By the <clears throat> way, I was totally yes. into the intro music, which for listeners, and I'm, I'm, I'm taking the plural in that uh, with somewhat of a grain of salt. Hi, Mom. Wow. Um, Hi. Hey, Mrs. C. Is, uh, uh, we are on a low-budget outfit here, uh, particularly if zero uh, reflects a low budget. But uh, listeners out there is that musical jazz interlude was Tate's son. <laughs> Tate's son <laughs> is Greg's son, Tate. Excuse me. Do you want to just take that again? Uh, no, let's just leave it. <laughs> what the okay. hell do I care? No one is listening to this. <laughs> okay. It's Greg's son, Tate, who recorded that into an iPhone, and so it's totally cool, and we like that. Yeah, I had him in his bedroom playing for an hour or so trying to, trying to get something out. Um, so we hope you like that. And you get what you pay for, I think. And I assume your children have talents that you can share? Uh, carried on their mother's genetic side, yes. Thank goodness. Yeah, no, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. so as the podcasts unfold, we will loop them in. Uh, I have one who is uh, a bit more uh, drama-oriented, and so maybe I could have her dramatically read article reviews of mine that I've gotten. That that would be entertaining. Ooh, and like the that. other one is a piano player, so maybe we can get some Johnson Rag. Uh, 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 slide piano occasionally. Um, I like that. Anything to avoid having to pay 
uh, uh, copyright. It turns out that, that, that doing podcasts where you steal music is frowned upon. And child labor laws are very loophole when it comes to your own children. Um, yeah, it's a learning experience. It's a teachable moment. I like that. Yeah, I do too. So should we move to the, the, the figurative mailbag? Because we don't really have a mailbag. Uh, simulated mailbag? A, an e-bag. E-bag. <laughs> e-bag. Um, sounds vaguely inappropriate, but we'll just go with that. Um, all right, so I have uh, uh, a note here from... Chicago, who is this? It's Elwood at the University of Chicago. And he submitted a manuscript in which he had a three-part study. And, and part one and part three, uh, there were significant findings. And part two, there was a non-significant finding. And he got an R&R, but there was a very persnickety reviewer who is requiring that he do a post hoc power analysis to help understand the non-significant findings. And uh, Elwood is a little perplexed by this and wonders if we can help him understand uh, what is post hoc power analysis and is there any real utility to that in a revision of a manuscript. So what are your thoughts on that? Just throwing it back to you. <clears throat> wow, there's a lot going on there. Uh, let's start with maybe just a little bit about power so that we know that uh, both of the people listening... Um, Hey, Mrs. C. So that your mom understands what power is and what the situation is that Elwood is in. Um, <clears throat> so power, and feel free to jump in and correct me as we go. Not that I need to tell you that. Uh, power is the probability of finding something when there's something to be found. And when you're doing a study, why would you do a study if you didn't have a good shot of being able to find the thing that you're looking for, assuming it's there in the first place? And so in this case, it sounds like Elwood didn't find anything, and the reviewer wants to know, well, did you have enough power? Does that sound, does that sound right? That's how I read the note, is okay. if, if he didn't, I'm, now I'm reading between the lines, but if he didn't find an effect, it might be because he has low power. Okay. Um, it might also be, and you can't rule this out, that there's nothing to find. And I think one of the problems with power analysis, and I'm sure knowing you and knowing me, we're going to uncover a few of them. But one of the problems with power analysis is it sort of hinges on hopes and dreams and beliefs and thinking you know what's true. Um, and in this case, the, <clears throat> the assumption that the reviewer is making is that there is something to find and there may not be something to find. So first step is, you know, there, is acknowledging that there might be nothing to see here. Drive on. So if there is something to see, the reviewer is saying, all right, tell me, tell me about the post hoc power. So post hoc power is going to be when the study is done and you're, you want to do an assessment to, to estimate how much power you had to try and find the thing. The problem is you didn't find the thing. And <clears throat> so in a post hoc power analysis, who's going to do it when they find something, right? I, I, didn't, I didn't hear a reviewer two saying, uh, what about study one and study three? So reviewer two is only saying to do that in the second study. Um, so if you if you want to do a power analysis, what are what are some of the things that you need to do a power analysis? When you do a power analysis, what are some of the things that you specify? Okay, so feels a little bit like doctoral exams here. So I will okay. I, I will uh, uh, give a run at it. 
<laughs> so an inferential test, and correct me if I'm wrong, an inferential Next. test is entirely determined. Okay. I'm talking here. I'm mm-hmm. talking four components. Sample size. Type 1 error rate, alpha. Effect size. And then your power. And those four are integrally related in which if you have any three, the fourth is determined. So for a given effect size, a given alpha level, and a given sample size, there's some degree of some level of power. So if you have 100 subjects, you have an, a, a type 1 alpha rate of 05, you have an effect size of, say, 0.2, some medium effect size, then there's going to be some level of power that's associated with it. So say 0.75, and what it literally means is that that alpha and that sample size and that effect size, you have a 75% chance of finding that effect if that effect truly exists. Is that a fair description of that? Yeah, I would just uh, add some of the legal fine print, and that is uh, assuming that you have met all of the assumptions that are underlying the test that you're conducting. Good. So they may or may not have any huge effect, but maybe they will. So if you have... Uh, you know, non-normality depends on what you're testing. Sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't. If you have, uh, if you violate the assumption of independence of observations, you know, if you have some really, uh, 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 some high intra-class correlation, if we want to say that, that could cause problems potentially. So I'm going to assume that every single planet has aligned for you, and then I'm buying into your, you got to have three of the four. I'm with you. Okay. All right. And Jupiter has to be in retrograde. Which it is. I checked this morning. So we're cool on that. Okay. Right. Um, So one of the other things that you said in your list was you you said an effect size. And the an effect size thing assumes that that whatever it is you're looking for is characterized by a single effect. And when you said, for example, I don't remember if you said delta or D, but... um, that's for a very specific type of test that you might be conducting. I don't know if Elwood's doing a regression or a larger model or, you know, I have no idea what the analysis is. And that becomes relevant here too, I would say. All right. So back to the issue, and this is going to reflect my particular bias about post hoc power analysis, and that is, I think it's useless. Um, so I'm just not going to candy coat it. I think post hoc power analysis is useless. Before I go further, do you want to do you want to challenge that? Could I add a corollary to it? Oh God, corollary! All right, how about a lemma? Can you? Add I will a lemma? do a lemma. Q E D E D. I think all power analysis is useless. Ooh. So why don't you make a run at why you think post hoc power analysis is useless, and I will expand that to all power analysis. <laughs> Hang on. Whew. All right. That was, that was a pretty bold statement, my friend. Uh, all right, sure. At post hoc power analysis. So my, my beef, and I, and I just want to fast forward through this because I can't wait to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Uh, it was very provoc- provocative, and I'm unu- un- unused to you saying things that are going to engage me. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, let me just get my bearings. <clears throat> Post hoc power analysis. Here's here's the thing: if you didn't find something, 
it means that if you do a post hoc estimate of the effect size that's necessary to do the power analysis, it's going to wind up putting you on the downside of power. Those two things are not um, are not independent of each other, and you will as the methodological literature talks about, you will likely get an underestimate of the effect size anyway because you wouldn't have been asking the question about power had you not rejected, had you rejected. So I think it's useless and I think it's also tied to uh, a particular mindset and that is that in post hoc power analysis you are either uh, you're either celebrating that you found something which is not the case in, uh, for Elwood, or you're whining about not finding something that you still think is there. And for me, the whole exercise then becomes kind of moot. Um, you will find that you didn't have enough power because you didn't find something. Thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Uh, do you have anything that you wanna you wanna add to that before we dig into your thing? <laughs> your your upstaging comment. Go ahead. No, I totally agree because going back to your assumptions and meeting assumptions, um, another one to add, and it taps into something that I would argue all the time in uh, uh, with a buddy of mine back in grad school is he made the argument that if you had a significant effect no matter how small the sample size then you have sufficient power for the test and i found it an intriguing argument for two reasons because there's kind of a pro and a con the pro is is given the four interlocking pieces that uh, uh determine an inferential test is if you have a significant effect then you have a large enough effect size to distinguish that from sampling variability when testing the null hypothesis but what, what my thought experiment was is even at smaller n, you're much more uh, uh, at risk for influential observations, outliers, things like that. And so you could literally have 19 scores that are zero and have one that's four standard deviations away from the mean. And then you get a significant effect on what is functionally a zero effect size because you are at such risk for uh, influential observations in small n. And so I'm totally with you, is the, the mic drop is exactly where I am as well, is you have sufficient power if you have a significant p and you have insufficient power if you have a non-significant p because all of these things are interlinking. Let me go to my admittedly somewhat hyperbolically stated, I think all power is useless, although not entire hyperbolically, is if you teleport back to Cohen, all right, so so Jacob Cohen, 1960s, he's doing amazing stuff. And in the late 60s, he really starts working on, on power analysis. And that was unambiguously useful, at least in my eyes. You have two groups, all right? You have a treatment group, you have a control group, you have a mean difference, you have some pooled standard deviation, right? We all learned this in undergrad stat. And there's, uh, in its simplest form, a t-test. And you want to know, going into the study, what is the probability that I'm going to be able to distinguish these two groups if these two groups really are different in the population? And if you go into a study like that and your power is 0.2 or 0.3, which unfortunately is what a lot of psychology is and social sciences, and, and he has several uh, very important papers over the years in highlighting that you know median power of published studies is something like you know, 0.3, 0.35, is... 
That's a horrible thing to think about is when you talk to a graduate student and you say, okay, even if your theory is right, right? That's the, it's a conditional probability is even assuming that your treatment is beneficial, you only have a one in three chance of finding a significant effect. So that is important. All right, now teleport forward though 30 years after Cohen, where we are now. And so we have multiple indicator latent factors. We have um, time nested within kids and kids nested within schools. We have multivariate growth models and we have all these amazing things that we couldn't have even dreamed about in the 70s and 80s. And you write an NIH R01 application and you have a mandatory paragraph that you say, what is the power of your study? And all I can think of, and I work with colleagues where I help write these paragraphs, and all I can think of is the power of what? Mm -hmm. Right? As Cohen was, he could unambiguously say it's the power of distinguishing two groups when compared to one another. But if I have a growth model where there's individual variability in trajectories of anxiety, there's individual variabilities in trajectories of alcohol use, I'm tying those growth processes together and regressing them on a set of exogenous covariates. It's mm -hmm. verging on ridiculous to say, what is the power of that? Is it a power of a mean, a variance? Is it a power of a set of covariates? Is it an omnibus test for the entire growth model? We have really well-developed ways of calculating all of these, but that's my feeling is I, I feel like we should move to a trichotomous power where you have low, medium, or high power. Your study is designed where, eh, you know, you might find an effect, you'll likely find an effect, or eh, I doubt you'll find an effect. Because I feel like saying I have a power of 0.82 for my mm -hmm. multivariate growth model is just not only useless, but it's disingenuous. I, I am with you. And I let me let me add a little bit of uh, both personal and uh, methodological color commentary, if I may. All right. Um, so I, when I was in grad school, although I knew what power was because I shaded the right region in the curve, uh, right, the classic sort of diagram. Um, it didn't really hit home for me until I was an assistant professor. And I was in my first faculty position, and I was attending one of these things that, as a senior faculty member, you <laughs> probably never attend. It was an all-university research gala or something, right? So where one presenter will talk about uh, um, uh, symbolism in Dante's Inferno, and then the next present presenter will talk about urban planning for, uh, you know, for people with visual impairments. And the next person will, so it's just so varied, it could not possibly hold the interest of anybody um, for more than two presentations. So, but I attended one of these because I thought I, I was supposed to. And a faculty member from, I don't remember the exact name of the department, but we'll call it Animal Sciences. I'm, it, there were b large gloves involved in that field, whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, so they talked about a study where uh, they wanted to feed pigs this special diet that would make, you know, essentially bigger, better bacon. But they were concerned that the diet might have a side effect of clouding the cornea of the pigs. Uh, that, and so it would 
impair their vision okay. while they're getting... So we wouldn't want to impair their envis- vision before we put a nail gun to their head. That's... Okay. <laughs> oh my God, is that how it's done? <laughs> I didn't know. Okay. Um. Anyway, wow. So It's uh, good they care. I mean, I, okay. I, it's nice that, that, that they care. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so they they presented some uh, their research, and they had a control group of pigs and a treatment group of pigs, um, normal you know pig chow versus the super duper <laughs> pig chow, and uh, and then in the end they were so so happy to report that after they euthanized the pigs and they measured the degree of corneal clouding that there was no difference in the corneal clouding, and so they were all in on the you know super duper pig chow, and. I'm sitting there and it's really bothering me. And I'm not the kind of, I'm not an agitator. I'm not the kind of person who asks questions to, you know, to, to be that guy. But, but it was just really gnawing at me. And so I raised my hand just for a point of clarification. And I said, um, I didn't see how many pigs you had in each group. Could you just remind us of how many pigs you had in each group? And it hadn't been on their slide. And they go, oh, oh, we had six pigs in the treatment group and six pigs in the control group. Okay, um, thank you. And so I, I got to, you know, a little bit of mental calculating. And the effect size that they would have had to have had to have a significant result would have had to have been so big that essentially the pigs would have been bumping into the walls. The pigs would have had little seeing eye dogs uh, in, their, in their sty. And it, to me, it meant the entire study was useless. And... And that it was a waste, you know, and, and it was a waste that was tangible to me in the sense that, you know, these pigs were euthanized for a study that had no shot, no shot whatsoever. And so that so that really bothered me. And it and it made me it made me buy into the idea of power analysis. So I like the idea. I like where Cohen's head was back in the sixties and a lot of stuff that was done since then. But the point that you make is spot on. And that is that it's not all about a delta. Most of what we do cannot be reduced to a single value that characterizes a study. And e- even if we go back to Cohen and we think about, you know, let's imagine that Elwood is doing a regression. Are we talking about the power of the R squared to detect the, a significant R squared? Because that's what Cohen tends to emphasize. Or are we talking about the power to detect a significant predictor among a set of other predictors? Okay, well, that's a little bit more complicated, and that's only a regression model. Imagine a model with two predictors, and I want to detect whether or not one of those predictors is significant. That sounds like an easy enough task and that everything is characterized by a single effect size, like a beta weight. The problem is that the power associated with detecting that one predictor depends on how strongly that predictor is related to the other predictor and how predictive that other predictor is of your outcome. And that's just a regression model with two predictors. When you start thinking about HLM models or your big big old growth models or all that, you cannot see all of those things. And, they, and, and many of them matter. Um, there's a line in one of my favorite songs that that says uh, your crystal ball ain't so crystal clear. And that's exactly how I feel about power analysis, that you will never be able to specify the entire context around the things that you care about. And 
the context can matter so much that it's not even just your 0.82 that's disingenuous when you talk about power. I mean, it could be a pretty decent range of what your power is. And I don't, you know, when I, when I do power analysis with people, um, which by the way is like 90% therapy, right? You sit there and go, how, how do you feel about this path? Do you think it's big? Do you, what if it's small? Could you live with it being small? Do you want to, I mean, you really have to, it's, I, I refer to it as a seance almost because you have to try and channel the spirits to inform you as to what all the characteristics are. Um, in the end, it's laughable because even when you identify the parameters you care about, you manipulate the context around that and it's just, it's, there's so much fuzz. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go full hyperbole like you did, which I liked, um, to say post hoc or, or a priori power analysis is useless. Um, but I will say, I don't really know how to do it anymore. Um, I can do all the mechanics of it. I can do the math of it. I can simulate it. I can do all of that stuff. But I don't know in the end that I trust much of anything that I get out. And that is actually how I feel. I was just trying to start with an interesting premise. I like I it. do think, I will back off a little bit that it's useless, but I do think as a field, and particularly in grant review, um, I've been at the table in grant review. I have, mm -hmm. you know, written power sections for colleagues. I've been fortunate to have a whole lot of my, you know, my own R01s. And so I've received uh, mm -hmm. these kind of critiques. And, and here, I, I don't feel like I'm being hyperbolic is I think grant panels are applying principles from 1968 to mm -hmm. research in 2019. And I think we need to change that. I think the notion of just take even a simple growth model. Don't even like go nuts. As say you have five repeated measures. Pretend you're doing it in a structural equation model. You know, so you have five indicators on a latent factor. You have an intercept, a linear slope. And you want to know what is the power of that? Well, first, it goes back to my point of power of what? Are, are you looking for the mean of the slope factor, the variance of the slope factor? I've seen argued in the literature, the covariance between the intercept and the slope factor is what's most important. <laughs> it, it um, you know, and so you have all of these kind of things, but at the same time, as you know, and you've actually written about some of this yourself, is, you know, the, the power of the test differs on the communality estimates on the repeated measures. So Absolutely. that's kind of the multiple R square of each repeated measure in factor analysis. Just in an ongoing quest of the field of quantitative trying to confuse people um, and to keep you buying expensive textbooks is uh, you take the same concept and rename it things so it seems something completely different. In factor analysis, mm -hmm. the explained variance in an indicator is called a communality. It's really just a multiple R squared. That's literally all it is, is of the total variability that's observed in the measure, what proportion can be explained by the underlying uh, factor structure? And then whatever is left is the residual. Well, it's been known for decades that the power of the test increases the higher your R squared is for the indicator. So again, it goes back to, all right, so what is the power of that test? Well, there's a range of things. And what I would like to see, 
And this would help me, like, if I were a reviewer. So I'm not on a standing review panel, but I do ad ad hoc reviews. What I would like to see when I I review is it kind of goes back to your pig example. Is I just want to know, does your alternative hypothesis have a fighting chance given the design of your study that you're proposing? I don't need to know that power is 0.821. First, never report power to the third digit. I don't think you should report it to the second digit. And on some days, I don't think you should report it to the first digit. No. But it is... It should be like the robins, the sparrows, and the ostriches or something. We just need these nice qualitative levels. You know, exactly. Is Do you have a smiley face? You know, we should do (laughs) emojis. Oh, my God. Power analysis by emoji. You heard it here. Uh, is do done. you have a, a a big smile or do you have like a a flat line? I don't know what it's called, you know, but a flat line smile or a sad mm-hmm. face. I think mm-hmm. all of power. You know what? Your entire section on an R O one could be section C dot one power analysis <laughs> and one emoji for the entire study. I uh, and I think you really should limit the emojis that people could choose oh from. you get three okay <laughs> you get three okay. and um if you go over the five hundred thousand dollar cap per mm-hmm. year and get permission from nih you can add the eggplant and the little poop <laughs> emoji so if you have like a multi-site kind of intervention trial you can go to five wow yep the poop emoji yep uh excellent yep <laughs> uh I think that I think that sums it up perfectly. Um, <laughs> so you, I mean, really, it does. It's about as good as it gets. And there's there's a standard error associated with the the face, but who cares? Yeah, no, I was gonna say no, no standard errors, no confidence nope. intervals, mm-hmm. no no verbiage. I don't want to see any text. Greg, you and I have built a career in writing paragraphs that are academically and intellectually engaging and apparently impressive that convey nothing that convey no useful information is Um, taken together wait wait. yeah (laughs) okay that's fair are you i was gonna say are you you can't possibly i've read your papers you have read Uh. my papers i'm not saying all of our work but to write a sentence of the form taken together we have designed a study in a way not previously conducted that will lead to innovative findings in a novel and rigorous framework to move the field forward in a way not previously possible. Okay, I got tenured on crap like that. Wow. Yes. No no standard errors, no confidence intervals, no text. I just want section C.1 power and i want a single emoji and that's all you're allowed (laughs) now unfortunately um elwood at the university of chicago um hung up which is kind of odd because he hanged himself well you know and he has revised and resubmitted his paper and it has uh, since been accepted tenured Um, i have to admit we did wander off the farm a little bit um, but anyway, Elwood, I don't know if that's uh-huh. of any utility at all. It's actually a topic for a prior episode is, uh, uh, you know, do you want to do that anyway for the sake of the reviewer? 
and you just kind of lean into the pitch and take your base. You do what you need to do to get a paper mm-hmm. out there. Or do you take a stand and say, you're not going to compute power because of, you know, the reasons that we articulated. That's a topic for another day. Um, mm-hmm. But so I, let, let me let me ask you this then. Um, just sort of wrapping it up and coming back to Elwood's question. Now you're in Elwood's position, and you have to respond to the reviewer. I know you. We have this belief system about the futility, certainly the futility of post hoc power analysis. How do you say that to the reviewer in a way that you think will be fruitful? Mm. How about if I give a short answer and we put a pin in this one as discussion for a future episode about how do you respond to reviewers? That's because, a lovely idea. Because I feel two ways. Is, um, you know, one is I'm a very pragmatic guy. And if the reviewer wants post hoc power analysis, then I will do post hoc power analysis, even though I don't believe it. To three decimals. Um, I, I, if not four. You know, uh-huh. um, and because I don't see this as a mechanism, as a teachable moment. So if I were in my office and a graduate student came in and said, should I do this for this, you know, for my master's? And I might talk for half an hour about the things that we, you know, just talked about, because, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's some, you know, kind of opportunity to, to, to think more carefully about these issues. Um, in a response to an editor, I might just say, you know, uh, uh, we we following the recommendation of of reviewer number two, uh, uh, we we computed the power and found this to be 0.58. Um, and then what I might do is I still stand like I'm pretty flexible in trying to respond to reviewers, but in the paper itself, I mean, your name is on that for eternity. And so, you know, what I might say is if I don't believe that really helps, um, I might say in the editorial letter that I, I calculated this, but, you know, given concerns that we just articulated, you know, I might put a sentence in as saying uh, uh, we chose to not report this in the manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, and nice. so that's what I might might do. But I, I like that. And and. And I like the idea of putting a pin in that topic and uh, talking more about how uh, how to manage reviewers. That's a nice idea. All right. So let's see. All right, Elwood, I don't know if that's any use or not. Um, you know, good luck with that and, and good luck with the manuscript. Uh, uh, maybe shoot us an email uh, uh, after the smoke clears and let us know what happened because uh, it'll be What email would a person use, Patrick? Why, what an interesting thing to ask is to have an email address, we would actually need a web page, wouldn't we? Uh, okay. Well, what, actually, what's the st- actually, we wouldn't. That's not technically correct. Okay. All right, so um, we do have a web page. Uh, as of now, it is absolutely bare bones, but we are at quantitudethepodcast.org. And if you want to contact either of us, uh, it's just our last name, so Hancock at quantitudethepodcast.org or Curran at quantitudethepodcast.org. And so if you have a question that you're interested in and, and want to hear us prattle on endlessly about, shoot us a, a line. And uh, uh, Elwood is uh, at that, use the same address he used before, but let us know. It'd be interesting to know what happened. So 
Greg, I am looking out the window and I'm afraid that the leaf blowing guy is going to come back at any moment. So this <laughs> might be a good place to wrap up. Thank you for your valuable time that you will never get back for listening to us. Uh, uh, we very much appreciate that. And uh, Greg, any parting shots? No, just thanks to your mom for, uh, for hanging with us. Thanks, mom. Uh, uh, give me a quick, uh, 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 give me a quick impersonation of my my Irish mother, as our exit point. <laughs> Patrick, get your mummy some smokes. There we go. <laughs> Sorry, mom. He did it. I can't control him. All right, everybody, take care, and we'll talk to you again. I like your brother better. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that even anti-vaxxers wish there was a vaccine for. Today's episode was brought to you by the Software Suite R for those who are already intolerably self-righteous and are looking for that last final push, and by the Type 2 Error, workhorse of social scientists everywhere, and by the PP Plot, whose name is way funnier than the QQ Plot. <laughs>